Okay, I invite you to pull out your notes for today's message if you would like to do that or perhaps to turn on your, your app if you have it on your, your phone or other device. Also, I'd like to give a very special welcome to all of you who are watching us today via the internet. We are glad that you're doing it and we welcome you as a part of our service this morning. Last Sunday, um, we, we were introduced in the... the uh, NBC television series, AD, The Bible Continues, we were introduced to a, a, a new individual by the name of Philip. And just as a short little background about Philip, Philip was not one of the apostles, but he was a Christian leader. And Philip was one of, of the seven that was chosen by the apostles to minister to the widows of the church, both the Hebrew and the Greek widows of the church. And... Uh, and there were seven men specifically called out by the apostles to do this. Philip was one of those men. Uh, along with him was a man by the name of Stephen. And we talked about Stephen last week. You might recall that. Stephen, of course, was arrested uh, and was put on trial. And because of the words and the testimony he gave on trial be before the Jewish uh, ruling council, he was hauled out and he was stoned to death. Well, after Stephen's execution, a very aggressive persecution against believers began at the hands of Saul. I talked with you last week about who Saul was as well. Saul will become the apostle Paul eventually. But at this particular point, this is pre-conversion for Saul. And so he is, he is on a mission to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And because of that, many believers were forced to leave their homes. In fact, they were forced to run for their lives from the cities perhaps they had grown up in. Um, and it, it was a scene much like what we're seeing in the world today in the Middle East, where many thousands of people have, have been killed by the hands of, of Muslim militants, many of them Christian brothers and sisters, and are forcing, being forced to leave their, their homes, their cities, and are, are refugees in foreign countries like Jordan, are running into Baghdad, hoping that, that they'll find protection there. And it's becoming a horrific, uh, a horrific Terrific problem with refugees in that part of the world. Well, in the same way of, as to what is happening in our world today, it was happening to the believers in Acts chapter 8. They were fleeing for their lives. The difference is the outcome. The outcome wasn't exactly what, what Saul, or for that matter, Satan, had intended or wanted. I, I once read a very true statement that says, persecution does to the church what wind does to seed. It scatters it and only produces a greater harvest. And that's what is happening here in the book of Acts. What the devil is meaning for evil, 
God is actually turning for good. Let's read about it. Acts chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. I, I shared with you uh, quite a bit from verse 3 last week. Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. In fact, later in the book of Acts, after Saul is converted and he's the apostle Paul, he admits freely, I did these very things. In fact, he goes on to state, I even killed some of the people that I arrested. So he had blood on his hands. Verse number four, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus everywhere they went. And so this is kind of a bad news, good news deal. The bad news is great persecutions breaking out. It's scattering people away from their homes. The good news is these people, these believers, they're pushed out of their homes. They're pushed out of their cities, but they're going everywhere sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere that they go. And people, we, we know from church history, by the thousands upon thousands are giving their hearts to Jesus Christ. So instead of the persecution destroying the church, which is what Saul intended, which is what Satan intended as the motivator behind Saul, instead of it stopping or destroying the church, it actually grew the church. So their problem became bigger. And I want to tell you something this morning about that. There's a principle here that you can build your life upon. It's so true today. Whether we are talking about the persecution of believers causing the church to expand in the book of Acts, or whether we're talking about Satan attacking your family specifically, he can take his best shot at you he can take his best shot at your life, at your kids, at your family. But if you are grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ, what Satan means to defeat you and to destroy you will turn out to be for your blessing and for your good. God has not left you. Hallelujah. And I want you to know, this is nothing new. You see this throughout the scriptures. In fact, if you go back and you check into the story of a man by the name of Joseph in the Old Testament, you'll see the exact same thing happening. Here we have a story of Satan taking his best shot at the Jewish people, specifically through Joseph, trying to destroy God's ultimate plan of salvation. This impacts you and me today. But God turning Satan Satan's most horrific shot, turning it into good and into victory. Let me tell you a little of the story. Joseph was a favorite son of his father, Jacob. Jacob was one of the uh, patriarchs. He, he, he was the, the headwater of the Jewish race. In fact, his grandfather was a man by the name of Abraham. His father was a man by the name of Isaac, and then you have Jacob. And God Almighty was in such a, a total covenant relationship with these three men that God himself called himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see that throughout the Old Testament especially. Now, at this particular point in Jacob's life, he has 11 sons. But he loved one of them more than the rest, primarily because of that son's mother. He loved that particular woman so deeply that he loved her son. His son that, his, that son's name was Joseph. And because of Jacob's love for Joseph, 
Understandably, the rest of the brothers became very jealous. Eventually, they despised him. So they came up with a scheme. Some of you know the story. The scheme is to sell him into slavery and, and to pretend like a wild animal has attacked him, killed him, and eaten him. Eventually, the opportunity presented itself for the older brothers to pull off their plan. So they sold him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt itself. But because the favor of God rests so heavily upon him, Joseph eventually became the second highest ruler in all of Egypt. So he has gone from being a slave, he ends up in prison, but from prison he goes to the palace and ends up the second highest ruler in all of Egypt. You, you just can't make up stories like this. It, it's, it's, a, it's amazing. He is second only to Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt. Now, in time, these same brothers, these villainous brothers that sold him into slavery, are sent by their father Jacob into Egypt to buy grain. The reason for that, there's a vast famine that's taking place in that region of the world. The only place that has grain is Egypt. And so Jacob says, my sons, go down and buy some grain and bring it back home. And when they came back, or when they came to Egypt, rather, they had to appear before, guess who? Joseph, the brother that they had sold into slavery. Into slavery. The reason for that is that Joseph was in charge of food distribution during this famine. So Joseph, when his brothers came in, recognized them immediately, but they didn't recognize him. Well, for one thing, they thought if he's still alive, he's a slave somewhere. But they figured probably by now he's dead. And so they're looking at this man sitting in a place of high position and, and all made up and, and royalty all over him and so forth. And, and they're looking at him and they don't recognize Joseph one bit. But when he reveals himself to them, I'm your brother Joseph, eventually he reveals that to them. They're scared to death because they're figuring he's going to pay us back now for what we did for him. He's got the cards now. He's in charge now. But Joseph's heart was so much like the spirit of Christ. Even though he didn't know Jesus, he had the spirit of God within him. And he forgave his brothers and he welcomed them to come to Egypt. In fact, bring your families, bring your father. I want to see my father again, Joseph said. And he encouraged them to bring all of their families down into Egypt to avoid the famine, which is exactly what they did. And it's at this point that Joseph told his brothers not to fear. And he said to them this very profound statement from which we get this incredible principle that God takes evil and turns it to good. Genesis 50 verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Okay, you wanted to destroy me. You sold me off. You betrayed me in the worst possible way. You sold me off into slavery. But God used the very thing you did to take me to a position whereby now I am able to save not only the Egyptians, but you guys. I'm able to save you guys and your families and your children. And have you moved out? What an incredible turn of events took, takes place. That is a picture 
of what the enemy tries to do in our lives. He tries to destroy. Jesus himself said it in John 10, 10. He says the thief, which is his, his terminology for Satan. Satan comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. How many of you know that's true? He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do to your life. That's what he wants to do to your kids. That's what he wants to do to your health. That's what he wants to do against your family. He wants to kill your victory. He wants to steal your potential. He wants to destroy your future. But Jesus is in charge. Jesus goes on to say, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. In other words, I am going to take the thing that Satan wants to use against you to destroy you and I will use it to be the very thing that brings blessings and favor upon your life and upon your family. Hallelujah, church. Give the Lord praise for that. You know, Satan is out to destroy. He was out to destroy Jacob. He wanted to destroy Jacob because he was one of the patriarchs of the Jewish people. And if Satan could destroy Jacob and his lineage, he would destroy all future generations of the Jews. And along with him, with them, he would destroy God's plan of salvation, which means you and I would have never had an opportunity to be saved. If Satan would have pulled off what he tried to do against Jacob, you and I would be lost today. That's how serious this whole thing was. But God used a horrible experience in the life of Joseph being sold into slavery, where I'm sure he thought nothing good can ever come out of this, but God turned that horrible thing into a good thing. Joseph's slavery actually became your salvation and my salvation, clear up in 2015. Now that's what is happening here in Acts chapter 8. Satan is inspiring Saul to persecute, to kill God's people, thinking I'm going to stamp out the plan of salvation. I'm going to stamp out the church of Jesus Christ. But what he meant for evil, God turned it to good. Because those persecuted believers, what did they do? They ended up running all over the known world at that time. Everywhere, the Bible says, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever they went. So instead of killing the church off, God's church expanded at an accelerated pace. Things just got worse for Satan. Hallelujah. I shared some stats with you last week, if you were here, about this very thing happening all over the world. We're seeing persecution on the rise all over the world and how instead of destroying the church, it's amplifying the church. It's accelerating the growth, not of an organization. I, when I say the church, I'm talking about the li living organism of those redeemed, born again, uh, uh, changed, uh, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking about. And so persecution is actually turning into the growth of believers all over the world. Let me give you just a few more worldwide statistics to encourage you this morning. These come from an author by the name of, of uh, Philip uh, Jenkins, who is a Penn State 
not, you know, I mean, Penn State uh, professor. So we're not talking about a, a, a Christian college professor who's written a book entitled The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity. This is what he writes. In 1900, there were approximately 10 million Christians in Africa. But by 2025, that's just 10 years from now, conservative estimates see that number rising to 633 million in just 10 more years. That's in 125 years, the church in, in Africa under all sorts of persecution is exploding in growth. That has to be God. The same thing is true in, in Asia. You put the numbers together there, excuse me, in Latin America, you have by 2025, 640 million. And in Asia, 460 million believers. By the middle of this century, 35 years from now, there will be 3 billion Christians in the world. One and a half times the number of Muslims. In fact, by 2050, there will be nearly as many just Pentecostal believers in the world as there are Muslims today. And these predictions are based on current growth statistics and rates. God is building his church. I want you to know you are a part of a living, dynamic organism that cannot be stamped out. It cannot be ruined. When people come along and tell you the church had to be restored, the church never had to be restored because God never lost it in the first place. It's always been alive. It's always been dynamic. It's always been growing. Now, what you will notice in those statistics that I gave you from, from this professor is that there's, there's no mention of growth in the church in North America or Europe. The truth is Christianity is shrinking in the Western world, not growing. In America, in just the last seven years, the Pew Research Organization has found that people identifying themselves as Christians have dropped from 78 to 70 percent. And you say, well, that's still a lot, of, a lot of believers, a lot of Christians. It is, but that's a huge percentage drop in just seven years. And the poll, this poll is not based or targeting those who call themselves born-again Christians. It's just targeting anyone who calls themselves a cultural Christian. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a Christian, you know. Maybe because their parents were. At the same time, the nuns, this is N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. We're not, talk, not talking about Catholics here. The nuns, it's another group, have increased from 16% in 2007 to almost 23% today. That's almost a quarter of our population. You say, who are the nuns? The nuns could be defined as people who don't identify with any religious group. They're irreligious. They don't care about religion. They don't care about churches. They don't care about God. They're, they may be atheist or agnostic. Probably they would fall in one of those two groups. They're, they're people who are fully secular. So nearly a quarter of our population now is totally disinterested in anything associated with God. Now, one somewhat encouraging side of all of this is when you look at evangelical churches in America, 
the drop is less significant. It's, the drop is, is less than 1%. But it is still a drop. Interestingly, the Assemblies of God, of which Life Church is affiliated, has grown over that same period, as, have life, as has Life Church in particular. But my point in all of this is not just to give you statistics, but to tell you that America is in tremendous need of a revival move of God. Some of you who know history know that God sent an incredible move of his spirit in America in the 1700s. And then later in the 1800s, they were called the First Great Awakening and the Second Great, Great Awakening. We are in tremendous need of a Third Great Awakening in America right now. But America's sins are so grievous. They're so high. They've piled up so high. You see it in the Old Testament over and over again where God lifts his blessing off of his people Israel. And he says, it doesn't matter how much you pray anymore, I won't hear you. Has America reached that point? I don't know. But I'm going to tell you this, you better be real concerned about that. Because that affects you, and affects me, and it affects our children, and our grandchildren. We have, we have murdered 58 million babies in this nation. 58 million have been aborted since Roe v. Wade. And if America continues on its current path towards rejecting Israel, because God has promised, I will bless those who bless Israel and I will curse those who don't bless Israel. If, if America continues on its current political path of, of walking away from our alliances to Israel, I fear that we will have crossed a line for which there will be no comp going back. We aren't there yet. Here's what God's word says. Second Chronicles 7:14, if my people, which are called by my name, not the people out there, my people, you and me in here, people who call his name, who call themselves born-again believers, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. In other words, be so fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. If we will do that, then he says, I will hear from heaven and I will heal your land. But if we, God's people, won't do that, the prediction given here of continued decrease of the influence of, of Christian faith upon this country will become true. And it is my personal opinion that this country became great because the people were great in their faith towards God. And when the people cease to be great in their faith towards God, we will cease to be a great country. But again, what the enemy means for evil... I believe can be turned for good if we will seek the face of God. 
And that is true whether we're talking about the growth of Christianity worldwide or whether we're talking about reaching a lost America or whether we are talking about the personal issues of your life. What will determine your inner victory? What will determine your ability to stand in the trial that is upon us or that will come upon you will be exactly one thing. It'll be your willingness to stay focused on the long view. And I wanted to tell you what the long view is. I was, I was reading a story by a friend of mine a while back who, who talked about going into one of those very unique kind of art places. This is not a place that you're going to find Rembrandt's in. This is one of these unique kind of art places you'll find in the mall, you know. And he walked into this unique art place and what caught his attention was a particular painting. It was a, it was a painting of a group of four American Indians on four horses riding those horses across the, the Great Plains somewhere. Beautiful picture. But what really caught his attention was the sign next to the painting that said, embedded in this painting is a picture of the face of Abraham Lincoln. And so he said, I stood there and I looked and I looked and I looked and I looked and I could not find the face of Abraham Lincoln. The longer I looked, the fuzzier it got. I never got past the horses or the, the American Indians riding the horses. All I could see was them. And he finally, in frustration, gave up and decided, you know, it wasn't really there. So he turns around and he walks back to the front door, going to leave the place. But just before he leaves, he turns around again and he takes a look at the painting hanging on the distant back wall. And there it was the face of Abraham Lincoln. What he couldn't see up close, he saw from a distance. And I want to tell you that life is very much like that. When we are real close to hurt, when we're really close to painful circumstances, when we're really close to persecution, it's hard to see any benefit from it. We look and we look and we look and we try to see, God, do you have a plan in all of this for me? And we look real hard to see how can anything good come out of what I'm going through right now. Up close, it looks terrible. Up close, it looks meaningless. Up close, it looks painful. And I would imagine to the Acts 8 believers who saw Stephen stoned to death just days before. We're now seeing Saul out on a rampage, killing their brothers and sisters, imprisoning brothers and sisters. They're on a run for their life. I would imagine that they look at all of that and they wonder, how can anything good come out of this? But the long view shows us that what the enemy meant for evil God used for good, Acts 8, verse 4 again. The believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. That was the victory that came out of that persecution. Was the persecution fun? No. Was Stephen still dead? Yes. But did good come out of it? 
Absolutely. The church expanded exponentially because these people full of the Holy Spirit went out and they took, instead of dwelling on their problem, they dwelled on the power of God to flow through them no matter what they were going through. Our problem is we get too focused on our problems and we get angry at God. And in so doing, we... we sabotage the ability of God to create anything good in and through our lives through what we're going through. Listen, I know some of you are facing very difficult circumstances right now, but I want to encourage you today. God has not left you alone. He is still hearing your prayers. And someday, the long view will reveal God's plan and God's victory through it all. If you will trust him, if you will stay close to him, if you won't allow the hardship to pull you away from God, but will say, Jesus, I'm just coming closer to you. The harder it gets, the more I'm running to the light, the more I'm running to Jesus. But this I have to tell you, the long view takes time. It takes time. In fact, the long view only comes with time. You won't get the long view within a week. And you may not get it in a month. And you may not even get it in a year. It may be years down the road that you'll look back and you say, look what God has done. Look how God used what I thought was going to destroy me for his glory. If you will wait for the long view to show up, God will bring it to pass. And what the enemy has meant for evil, God will turn it for good. Remember what God promises in Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And you can trust that. So whatever the enemy means for your destruction, for your evil, as evil against you, will you trust Jesus today that God will use it for good? Can you do that? I don't mean to embarrass Egel and Shweta down here in the front row, but your circumstance comes to my mind, and this is their last Sunday with us. They're moving to another state. A few weeks ago, he came up to me and he said, you know, I lost my job this week. And I said, why? What happened? And he said, the company that I was working for, and I don't know who you were working for, but wanted to get something into the marijuana trade in either Colorado or Washington, where it's legal. And because of his convictions for Christ, he said, no, I won't do that. And I'm probably not getting the story completely straight, but it was something like that. You refused to, to be involved in that. And they said, okay, Reader's Digest version, you're fired. So they fired him. Agnes Shwedev come over here from the country of India. It's not like they moved up from St. George to Salt Lake. They, they came a long ways for their job, and, and they got that job, and it was a good job, and all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. And it's gone because of his faith in Christ and because of the convictions that he holds in Jesus. 
Sometimes when you stand for God, it's going to cost you something. Here at Life Church, we pray that you have a blessed week. Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can always go to lifechurchutah.com.